So we're going to get into our text. If it's your first time here, welcome. Uh, we have been in the book of Genesis for almost a year, and this morning we're bringing it to an end as we cover chapters 48 and 49. I'm a little bit more mobile than I was last week. The MRI report came back, and the good news is I can walk. I, don't, I won't be an amputee in that sense, but my knee is totally blown out, and so I'll be having surgery most likely in the next few weeks. But uh, we'll get through Christmas, and uh, God is good. Amen? Amen? So here we go. Genesis chapters 48 and 49. It's a really cool ending to this book. And yet again, it's, it's another narrative and storyline that's completely unexpected. Our man Jacob, one of the great all-time patriarchs of the faith, He's facing death. He's about to die. And I think it's been rightly said that when people of faith face death, life becomes more clear. Because what you see happening is he looks back over the decades that he has been walking with God through all the highs and all of the lows, the good times, the bad times, the joys, the pains, the heartaches, the stuff that we all experience in life. And he sees the faithfulness of God. Certainly on the forefront of his mind are these crazy promises that God made to him that started with his grandfather Abraham, passed down to his dad Isaac, and now to Jacob. And the promise was to give him a family. In fact, the family so prosperous, they would one day become a nation. This is why later, in the narrative, as Jacob is wrestling with God, he gets his name changed to Israel. He will be the father of the Israelite Nation. Why is that? Because God promised it to be so. He also made the promise of land, not just any land, but some of the choicest land, the land of Canaan. So to have land and to have offspring, to be a nation, that was the greatest blessing that one could receive. God had made these promises to him. And so now, now Jacob is at the end of his life, and, and he's thinking in terms of legacy. And you know, that's just kind of what happens as you get older. You, you start to process things in a different way. And you're like, what do I want to be known for? What do I want to leave behind? It's, it's kind of like that idea of imagine yourself at your funeral. And you're there. And you're listening to what's said about you. What would you want people to say? Legacy. So what's left is for him to give specific blessings to his sons and then two of his grandsons. Now, it's really interesting about the life of Jacob that all the things that he's known for, all the crazy experiences that he's had with God, it's what we read in Genesis chapters 48 and 49. It's actually what New Testament saints know him for. So in the New Testament, there's, there's this book called Hebrews. And in it, you get a list of patriarchs and matriarchs, great men and women of the faith who have come before us. And we're told that their stories are there for us to learn from. And so not only do you get their names, but then you get a little something about what makes them so special. So of all the things that took place in Jacob's life, what's mentioned about him is the contents of 48 and 49 and what he does with these blessings. In fact, let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Kind of crazy, you know? It's like, he's, he, like he wrestled with God. He met with God face to face. That stuff isn't mentioned. What's mentioned is this blessing, and I'll tell you why. Because there's tremendous faith in the blessing that he gives to his boys and to Joseph's sons, his grandsons. And I'll just give you a spoiler alert. The faith is looking forward to a promise that God would make about a forthcoming Messiah. Jacob believes that God is going to fulfill that promise. 
And that's why he's listed in this hall of faith. But it comes about in the most unexpected way. So it's, it's, it's like this, these chapters are, are actually a bit of a Christmas message, believe it or not. And in God's sovereignty, I'm not smart enough to plan it like this. It just happens to fall this way. But this is actually a Christmas message because the faith Jacob has is in a forthcoming Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem, who will be described as this lion of Judah, which is the language that we're going to read, whose, whose kingdom will reign forever. Again, the language that we're going to read. All of the things that are described of Jesus, you actually find in this text. So, Chapter 48, verse 1. So after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. You need to know that these two boys are not full-blooded Hebrews. They're half Egyptian. That will become very important in a moment. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. So I always like picturing this. Remember, Joseph is like one of the most powerful men in the land. So he shows up at his dad's house. He's rolling with his entourage. What a spectacle. Now remember, for the last many, many years, the father and the son have been reunited, but previous to that, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. Then he discovers he's this this influential ruler in all of Egypt who, because of his vision and interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, ends up being a savior to many people. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Israel, remember, like I said, is the other name of Jacob. The name Israel literally means one who wrestles with God. And what's interesting is that you see that with the people, the Israelites even to this day, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, there's still this wrestling match that they kind of have with God. It's gone on through history. Where do you think that started from? So then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So you have to picture this old man and he's kind of like, you know, with his last breaths, dying man's words are among his most important And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, I actually know him as El Shaddai. That's what he's saying, El Shaddai. The powerful God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. So he's reminiscing about this encounter that he had. This this was a pivotal moment in, in his life. He's sharing it with Joseph. And this is what God said to me. Behold, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give you this land. That would be the land of Canaan to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So here Joseph lays dying. He's reflecting on his relationship with God, and certainly this memory comes to mind. Um, Same memories, same promises that were given to to his grandfather and, and his dad passed on to Jacob. Now what Jacob wants to do is pass them on to the rest of his family as God directs. So he says, verse five, and now your two sons, Joseph, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, those boys are mine, he says, and then he names them. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Reuben and Simeon, those were the, the first two born to Jacob. And so this is more than Jacob saying, well, I, I'm, I'm gonna treat my, my grandsons as if they were my own sons. Joseph, bring them to me. It's more than that. Um, as we find out in chapter 49, what he's saying is that, Joseph, your two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, my, my grandsons, they're actually going to take the place of my two oldest boys, your older brothers. They're actually going to take the place in the family line of blessing. Bring them to me. Now, this is, this is a shock to Joseph. This is the first time he has heard this. 
Verse six, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So in other words, the rest of Joseph's kids will have their own inheritance, but they're not gonna receive this special, special blessing that, that these two, Manasseh and Ephraim, will receive. Now, uh, uh, after saying this, again, Jacob is dying, and, and so he's flooded with all these memories, emotions, and thoughts, and what comes to the forefront of, of, of his mind are, are these really important relationships. And one of the most important is the relationship that he had with his, his wife, Rachel. He had a number of kids, four different wives, but the wife that was most special to him was Rachel, which happens to be Joseph's mother. And he, he gets emotional over it. So tomorrow, tomorrow, Jill and I will have been married 30 years. 30 years tomorrow. Yes. Good job, Jill. Way to hang in there. So, I think it was on our 20th, 20th anniversary 10 years ago. I think I might have shared this with you before. Jill took me to the church where we got married. And she wrote this beautiful note. And so we're in the parking lot of this church where we got married. I open up this letter. And it contained 20 years worth of memories together. I couldn't get through it. I'm not a crier. I could not get through it. 20 years of these beautiful memories together. The highs, the lows, the nod to the future. I would imagine this is what's going on in, in Jacob's own heart. This woman that he loved, who actually died giving birth to Benjamin, the youngest. And he talks about it. He says, Joseph, as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died. In the land of Canaan, on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So now what, what Jacob's about to do is extend Rachel's line through Joseph. Joseph's two oldest sons will become direct heirs with a very special place and privilege. Verse 8, so when Israel, right? Now, this is important now because the author will interchangeably use the name Jacob in Israel. And when he does, it's important to note that. Israel indicates blessing of land. So that's why he's, he's using the name Israel now, and you'll see why, why that's important. So when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now, I don't believe this is a question of unrecognition, like he doesn't know who his grandkids are. But what's interesting is that the text reveals that this is actually the language of adoption, this is the language of an adoption ceremony. In the same way that a pastor who officiates a wedding might say something like, who gives this woman to marry this man? Well, everybody knows who it is. It's her dad. So this is the language of adoption. An adoption is, my wife was adopted when she was just a few days old. Adoption is a, is a very special thing. And there's a process that one would go through. This is adoption ceremony. Again, notice the name Israel is used rather than Jacob. This is the, to signify what's about to happen. Verse 9, Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. 
And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I, I never expected to see your face. You know, for many years, son, I thought you were dead because your older brothers lied, told me that you'd been slaughtered by a wild animal when in fact they sold you into slavery, but God's hand was with you. Now we all know. Now there's family restoration, but that was, the, that, was the, that was the family drama that took place. We're over that now. We're in a better place now. Behold, God has let me see your offspring also. I get to see my grandsons. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, which means the boys were, were probably younger. And he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. So since dad is nearly blind, Joseph has to make it easy for him. So he brings the boys to grandpa. Now here's what's interesting. Uh, Joseph grabs Manasseh by the left hand. He's the oldest. Why? Because Manasseh, as the oldest, should get the highest and most honorable, sort of the firstborn right and privilege blessing that comes with being in that position. So he takes Manasseh, grabs him by the left hand, grabs Ephraim by the right hand, and he walks him toward grandpa. Now, if grandpa is standing here, right, the one on the left is going to be presented to the right hand, right? And the right hand signified the hand of blessing. So I'm just giving you the context. That's why you read these details. They're really, really important. So, so Joseph brings Manasseh, the oldest, so that he's in front of Jacob's right hand. Ephraim is, front of, is in front of uh, Jacob's left hand, right? And, and he's fully expecting for this blessing to be laid down, the greater blessing to be given on the older one, Manasseh. But something startling happens. And Israel stretched out his right hand and he lays it on the head of Ephraim. And he takes his left hand and he places it on the head of Manasseh. Notice what the text says. What's he do? He crosses his hands. And then you get this parenthetical statement. For Manasseh was firstborn. Now, in this moment, Joseph would have been in absolute panic. And what, we know, what we're about to read later in a bit, we're actually told he doesn't like what he sees. Um, this is such a sacred moment in the family's life. And grandpa, old grandpa, with his failing eyes, he's messed it up. This most sacred moment. So when I was... When I was uh, much younger, officiating a, a wedding for this sweet young couple, you know, sort of the height of the wedding is, would you like to kiss your bride? And, you know, they kiss each other. This is after the I do's, and everybody's so excited. And then there's the pronouncement, right? And so I have the couple face their friends and family. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great privilege to announce to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., and I forgot their names. <laughs> like 150 people out there and everybody's like so like it's like the crescendo moment right and I'm like Mr. and Mrs. Uh, and I pushed him forward 
bam, the music starts. And I was like, I screwed that up. The focal point of the ceremony. This is like the focal point of their lives. This is it, man. This is legacy stuff. And what does the old man do? And Joseph's like, this is bad. This is the hand of blessing right here. This one. This is the older. This is how it's supposed to go, dad. Uh, Joseph's a bit speechless, dumbfounded, as he hears his father speak. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. Interesting. Not, not in them being Reuben and Simeon, his two oldest sons, but now his grandsons. And in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. That's it, done. It's official and it's also historical. These two boys, whom most would consider half-breeds, Joseph had an Egyptian wife, half Egyptian and half Hebrew. The promise that God started with Abraham of land and nation, passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob, is now going to these boys. Now, Joseph has time to gather himself, you know, and not liking what he sees, verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. The language here is actually interesting. It describes a strong grip. It's almost like, no, dad, dad, no. Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know. I know what I'm doing. God is directing this whole thing as he has directed me for the last several decades. I know what I'm doing. And don't worry about Manasseh. He also shall become a great people, and he also shall be great. Don't worry about Manasseh. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So he wills Joseph some personal land that he took in battle. So this is really... You know, it's like, it's like every week, it's like there's this plot twist. And what does that communicate? Well, once again, we're reminded that God just does things in his own way. And very often, we do not understand it. We don't expect it. Um, his grace and his blessings, they arrive in just the most surprising ways. But more to the point, the application might just be this for you and I. There might be something that you're, you're putting forward under God's right hand. 
In other words, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I want you to bless this. And God is saying, no, not this, but this. Uh, his hand passes over what you're asking him to bless. And I've been thinking a lot about why that is. Well, God does what he does for his own great purposes. We don't fully know because we're, we're caught by time. God transcends time. He sees and notices all the outcomes and his will is, is, is done. But I think also it has something to do with very often what we ask God to bless potentially can become the very thing that if he did bless, we would covet. See what I'm saying? And God isn't gonna bless anything that you would wanna turn into an idol. And that might be why God is saying, no. I'm passing over that. That's not gonna be where your blessing is. It's gonna be somewhere else. And then God, you have to learn that God will give you the grace to live with, without what you most earnestly desire so that you can be content and you can learn to trust him. And that's a tough one. God's grace can't be tamed. It shows up in the most unexpected ways. Shocking truth is that these boys, from an outsider's perspective, well, let me put it to you this way. From an insider's perspective, from a family perspective, there's no way that God should be passing along this blessing to two half-breeds. And yet, God has his own principles that defy, cannot be confined to conventional human wisdom. And it would take Jacob a lifetime to learn this lesson. And Joseph's own faith is being tested here because what he's realizing now is that his two boys will never be Egyptian princes. In fact, what's gonna happen is they're gonna exchange the high life for the low life. They will essentially be part of a shepherding dynasty, low class. <laughs> and yet, through these two boys, eventually the entire world will be blessed. This is a glimpse into what happens beyond this because um, there is uh, as a sense of a father to your boys, you want to give each one of them their own blessing. And so that's what happens next. Each one of the 12 sons of Jacob is paraded in front of dad and dad is going to speak into their lives. And, and, and as dad speaks, each son gets a glimpse into his future. Each one of these boys will give rise to a tribe that will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Chapter 49, verse one, then Jacob called his sons from the confinement of his bed. He's got blurry eyes. The boys pass in front of him. He said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. You wanna know your future, boys? God's gonna reveal it to you through me. So assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. So he's about to prophesy over his boys. And he's going to start with the oldest, Reuben. And Reuben, as he comes forward, Reuben is not at all confident because he's tried to usurp his father's authority. And this is what he hears, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, 
the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So this is an acknowledgement of his birthright, but Reuben hasn't lived up to that right and privilege. Verse four, he says, Reuben, you're an unstable man, unstable as water. This is a dad speaking truth to his son. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What we read earlier is that in an attempt to usurp his dad's authority, he went and intermingled with his, with his dad's concubine. The rest of Reuben's story, eventually his line will come to an end. Now the next two. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen, cursed their be their anchor, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Years ago, Simeon and Levi took revenge and slaughtered an entire uh, group of men, a, a tribe essentially wiped them out. They had anger issues. Tribe of Levi would go on to establish the priesthood, but eventually both tribes were divided and scattered. Now, brother number four, Judah. Here the tone changes dramatically. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, here's where the language gets really interesting. Pay attention carefully. He says, Judah, Judah is, a, is like a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a, as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. A lot of really rich language there. Here, here's what it means. Judah, he had an utter failure. He, he had an illicit relationship with his daughter-in-law when his daughter-in-law disguised herself. He didn't know it was her. And when it was discovered, he comes clean and he admits his guilt. And there's a heart change in him. See, that's the difference between him and his brothers. There's repentance, there's sincerity. Eventually, Judah will end up offering his life in exchange for the life of Joseph. This is a changed man. Has he done everything perfect? No. But there was a change of heart when he was confronted now, the language here is important. Judah is a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. All of this language is messianic language that gets picked up and related by future prophets and specifically spoken and applied to the forthcoming Messiah. Now, what's fascinating about this is that these messianic descriptions, you read through the New Testament, guess who they're applied to specifically? Jesus. You read the book of Revelation, and you know how Jesus is described? He's described as what? The Lion of Judah. This idea of a scepter, whether that's, that's what kings have. Well, this king is going to rule forever. Read the book of Revelation. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his kingdom that he reigns over will be forever. So all of this language that's being used is actually uh, it's prophetic language pointing forward to Jesus. Zechariah would include uh, this, this kind of language and even talk about the manner in which the Messiah 
this king would, would arrive. Zechariah chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is exactly how Jesus arrives into town the first day of the Passion Week. What's he riding? He's riding on a donkey, this, this humble creature. Now, the mention of all this wine is really significant here. When he talks about binding his foal to a vine, Right? He's going to wash his garments in wine, vesture in the blood of grapes. What's all that? Well, here's what he's saying. What he's saying is that when the Messiah comes, there will be such an abundance. It will be like having a donkey, and instead of tying your donkey to just like a hitching post, you tie him to a grapevine. And what's that donkey going to do? He's just going to start eating those grapes and eating those grapes. But the imagery is like, you know what? No problem. There's so many grapes. Go ahead and let the donkey eat. In fact, there's so many grapes, right? When this Messiah comes, there's going to be such an abundance. This is the language. There's going to be such an abundance that you're going to be washing your clothes in grape juice. In fact, check this out. When the Messiah comes, watch this now. When the Messiah comes... Water will be like wine. What's the first miracle Jesus performs when he arrives? Bam! He turns water into wine. And everybody's like, oh, oh. See, they understood the words of Zechariah. So when the New Testament opens up and you get these biographical sketches of the life of Jesus and the authors are like, hey, let me just let, drop this miracle on you. First thing Jesus does when he steps up is water into wine. Remember what Zechariah said so many years ago? When the Messiah comes, there's going to be such an abundance. The water will become like wine. Just before Jesus is crucified, he's sharing the meal with his disciples. And what does he do? He takes the wine and he says, this wine now what? It represents me. It represents me. Now it's my blood that brings you an abundance of life, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So um, this is the way in which Genesis ends. In the most beautiful way, Genesis points to, don't be shy now. Genesis points to, we've been saying it almost every week, guys. People say, I don't understand the Bible. How does it fit together? The Bible fits together so beautifully. Perfect. It's perfect. People are very quick to dismiss the Bible. It's because they judge it without knowing it, without reading it, without even attempting to understand it. God gives you grace in unexpected places. Bethlehem. Podunk town. Not Rome, Bethlehem. Not in the palace, in a manger. Right? This is the story of Jesus. The announcement is made to shepherds. Magi. Are you waiting for the right hand of God to bless something? Maybe he chooses to. Maybe he doesn't. But... Whatever he does, know that it ultimately will be for your good and for God's glory. We couldn't see the outworking of Manasseh and Ephraim. We couldn't see that in the day. But what it would eventually give rise to would be the birth of Jesus. God knows exactly what he's doing.
So, Father, as we end our time together, we just want to celebrate the good words of this book, specifically Genesis and what it it teaches us and how it reminds us that God cannot be tamed. Uh, He cannot be domesticated. We do not want to play God for the fool. We do not want to think that we think better than God because in the end, it's just such a, a beautiful bow on what God started in Genesis chapters two and three with the fall of man through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ultimately fulfilled in the person of promise, Jesus, who would redeem what was broken, scarred, fractured in Eden and will one day restore a Garden of Eden-like state to those who believe in him. Father, whatever we're placing under your hand of blessing, will you give us clarity as to exactly what you want? And then like Jacob, give us the wisdom and the maturity to be able to trust you, trust that we can live without that blessing in our lives, which is probably gonna mean we're gonna have to lean into you more. That causes us to know you more. So it's in all things, Father, for our good and your glory. And because of Jesus Christ and God's people said, Amen.